One thing I've noticed is that a lot of the adult victims, by the time they're adults, have had very disjointed, very unhappy lives. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, mental health issues, homelessness. That's not uncommon among the clients that we've represented. Hey, this is Sean Kernakin, and you're tuned into Civil Action. This is a podcast of Cabotech LLP. We're a firm in downtown LA that does a lot of different work on the plaintiff side. And we put this podcast on so we can share with you what we are learning about the law. Our podcast is dedicated to important topics for lawyers and issues in the law. We have guests. We talk about recent cases. We talk about trends. We talk about practice areas. We try to help people be better lawyers and learn about the law. In some ways, you can look at this as a 15 to 20 minute law school class each week. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to Civil Action. This is Brian Cabotech. I'm the managing partner of Cabotech LLP in Los Angeles. I've got my trusty sidekick. He loves when I call him a sidekick, Sean Karnikian, and, and one of our lawyers with us today, Marina Pacheco. Sean, you want to introduce yourself? I'm actually Brian's partner, but but sidekick is fine. That's cool. That makes us sound like superheroes. And we have Marina Pacheco is from our office as well. Say hi, Marina. Hello. Happy to be here. Marina is one of the lawyers that's been with our firm for a few years now. She has a vast amount of experience handling all types of cases, but particularly relevant to what we're talking about today. She does a lot of sex abuse cases, and she knows a lot about that. And we're here to pick her brain. And that's you know one of the areas that we practice in. And I think it's one of the areas that Marina feels passionate about. Why don't you tell us a little bit more, Marina, about what you do in, in general, but more specifically in the sex abuse area? Yeah, so I've had an opportunity here at Cabotech to work on several sex assault, sex abuse cases. And there has been a statute that's been enacted, CCP 340.1. It provides for a lot of special tolling of statutes of limitation. So this is kind of a hot topic right now because there's a lot of filings coming on in these cases. And I've had the opportunity to be able to work on those. We deal with uh, cases against schools, uh, cases against churches, and we represent minor children or people who were minors at the time of the abuse. It's a very rewarding area of law to be involved in. Let's break it down a little bit first, because this is being recorded in about the middle of December. And there is a important deadline coming on December 31st. People may be listening to this after December 31st, 2022. So some of what we're going to talk about today applies, whether it's January 1st, 2023 or December 31st, 2022. But let's just first talk about the basic history here of these statutes. So it used to be several years ago that any kind of sex abuse case of a minor, and that's predominantly what we're talking about here today, or sex abuse cases involving people when they were under the age of 18, had to be brought initially within one year of turning 18, and then the statute of limitations got expanded for two years, so you had to bring it before your 20th birthday, right? So that was the old rule. And then as things started to evolve, and we evolved as a people, we suddenly came to realize that children who are abused as children oftentimes were press memories, oftentimes don't want to talk about it. And as time marched forward, particularly with the Catholic Church and with other entities, there was a recognition that, that there needed to be justice. So initially, there was a movement 
to revive a statute of limitations for a limited period of time, regardless of your age, to be able to bring cases against the church. So let's kind of take it from there and what happened after that. Well, I'm curious to know what the reasoning is behind it. I kind of know because of the psychological trauma associated with it. But have you seen that, Marina, in the cases that you've worked on where really the victim doesn't recognize and doesn't know what happened to them was abuse? Is that something you deal with? And is that the justification for these changes in the statutes? Absolutely. Victims of sexual assault, oftentimes they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to seek help. It's such a private issue. It's it's a very difficult, traumatizing issue for them. And so they might wait to see a therapist or understand that the issues or the psychological torment that they're enduring is due to the assault that happened years ago. And so I think it's very important. The statute provides the ability for these people to be able to bring a suit because of the special nature of sexual assault and the way that it affects them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. The way that it it, it affects their memory or ability to remember. It's not uncommon in these cases at all for children to repress the memories. They're horrific. They're horrific cases. And one thing I've noticed is that a lot of the adult victims, by the time they're adults, have had very disjointed, very unhappy lives, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, mental health issues, homelessness, that's not uncommon among the clients that we've represented. It's something that can truly ruin people's lives. And I guess that's the justification behind reviving statutes or extending statutes of limitations. So let's talk about the general framework of what the current status is of the law. So it's no longer one year or two years after the age of majority, right? It's not, they don't have to bring it, you know, by the time they turn 19. Generally, on like the kind of higher level, Marina, what, where is the statute of limitations now? So there's a couple of tolling provisions in CCP 340.1. If we're talking about the big window that we're concerned with, the filing that has to be done before the end of this year, it is 340.1 subsection Q, which states that if there was a lawsuit that could not have been brought prior because they missed the deadline to do so, that they can revive the ability to bring that action from January 1st, 2020 up until 2023. So it gives you a three-year window to uh, file these lawsuits. And so there's a big rush to the courts right now to get a lot of suits that happened before where the victims were unable to bring the case. So Marina, just to be clear, we're talking about December 31st, 2022 is the last day technically, because I think it's a weekend, to file this particular type of case. Correct. The statute specifically says that if it would have otherwise have been barred as of January 1st, 2020, that it is revived within three years of January 1st, 2020. Okay, so let's talk about what that means. What cases would have been barred as of January 1st, 2020? Well, there's cases that happen prior, if I can talk about specific locations. There's the McLaren Hall cases where there was a lot of abuse that occurred prior in this facility that was a foster home. And unfortunately, they were using sexual assault as a means to call it discipline of the children. These cases before people were coming forward, the place closed back in 2001. And so now, you know, looking at the statute itself, if they could not have brought the action before, because of you know, you have, again, like Brian said, there was the old rule of the statute that applied. And then now... So, for example, like in like 2005, this person couldn't have brought it. Now, that period that started January 1st, 2020, it revived it. 
But what are the characteristics, Marina, of that person? Are they a certain age? Is there certain criteria that made them ineligible to bring a case before January 1st, 2020? So the general rule before 340.1 was enacted, it didn't toll the statute as far back as it has now. So now the statute is within 40 years, they have to be 40 years of age before they bring the action, okay? Or it has to have been brought within five years that they knew that the torment and abuse had caused them the emotional injury. Before, I believe, as Brian was saying, it was 22 years of age. So if there had been people who had reached 30 years old and they weren't unable to bring a case under the old statute, once 340.1 was enacted, it told the statute up until 40 years of age. So that window of time that people could not have brought that action, it's revived by this new statute. So that's the, the old statute is you could bring a case up until the age of 40. And that excluded certain people who were over 40 as of January 1st, 2020. Is that right? That's correct. So if someone was 45, they were time barred as of January 1st, 2020. So if somebody was 45, they would be time barred, assuming that they also had known that the sexual assault had caused them harm more than five years after, right? Because the statute is 40 years that they have to file the case and or five years within the time period that they knew that their psychological issues were caused by the sexual assault. But after January 1st, 2023, someone who's over 40 is barred. Somebody who's over 40 is barred if they knew about this abuse for five years before filing. So let me back up here. So the statute specifically says that if the minor child files their case before they turn 40, the statute is not blown. The other qualifier for that is that if they're over the age of 40, they can bring the case, but they have to show that they did not know more than five years before that their psychological issues were caused by the minor sexual assault. Right now, that's the framework right now. That's correct. After January 1st, what happens? That, that goes away, January 1st, 2023? I believe that's still the law. Okay. The change for the revival statute is a different subsection that we're talking about under 340.1. That subsection specifically revives these lawsuits where people did not fall under that original statute limitations. So for instance, back when the statute was only 22 years of age that they had to bring the case, right? they then turned 30 and the statute since then has been expanded up to the age of 40. 40. So this provided a window for all of those people who missed out on that opportunity. Who were time barred legally, you know, correctly applying the law, whatever it was back then. They were time barred. This kind of opened it up where they could file again. Even someone who, what would happen? I, this is now like a total hypothetical, but what if somebody had brought a case, it got thrown out because they were beyond the statute of limitations, would they be able to refile? Or is that kind of like a speculative I mean, I think under the wording of the statute, as long as it was filed before the end of this year, that they could. As long as they had a prior case and that prior case wasn't fully adjudicated or dismissed with prejudice. Got it. I have some other questions. If we can shift away from like the actual timing and the qualifiers and things like that. What are the specific procedural requirements? Because I know that that's something I hear you dealing with often on this stuff. There's a lot of very, very tricky procedural requirements when it comes to filing a sex abuse case particularly when 
the person who was abused as a minor is now over 40 years of age. And, you know, again, statute of limitations are in place for a reason. As a plaintiff's attorney, I hate to say that, but it's the case. And so the legislator provided for some safeguards to protect the people who are being named as sexual predators and being sued for the sexual assault. That starts with the certificate of merit. In some lawsuits for against for professional negligence purposes, you currently, and I'm sure some of you as lawyers are aware, that you have to file a certificate of merit by, let's say, an engineer who says, I've looked at this case, there's some type of merit to this case. Right. Like I've seen that in cases where I've had to sue an engineer, for example. Yeah, you've got to get a certificate of merit from another engineer. So the sex abuse statute uh, allows for or requires, shall I say, the party to seek out a mental health professional. And the mental health professional must evaluate the lawsuit or the facts that are being alleged under the lawsuit and evaluate the client and basically say, look, I've evaluated this. This is consistent with the symptoms that they're having is consistent with having been abused as a minor child. There's some type of merit based on my professional opinion to this case. Once you get that filed, the court has to make a determination whether the case is a reasonable and meritorious case under that. But I shall say there also is a requirement of an attorney certificate of merit in addition to the mental health care professional. So you need both of them. Exactly. And if it's an attorney certificate of merit and there's multiple defendants, you have to file a separate one for each and every defendant. And these are filed un- under seal usually, correct? Yes. Because so, they contain work product and things like that that you don't it, want the other side to see and they're not allowed to see. Exactly. So those should be, the statute doesn't specifically specify, but based on, you know, what the courts have seen or held, that it should be filed or lodged with a certificate of merit, should be lodged with the court at the time of the filing of the complaint. And another thing that I think is important to note is that the defendants, if the person is over the age of 40, they cannot be named as a actual defendant in the case by their true name at the time of the filing. And there's special procedures that we can go over after that, but just noted that at the time of filing, Certificate of merit is required for both from the attorney, the mental health care professional, and then as well as obviously the complaint. And you'd name them as a DOE DOE defendant? Exactly. I assume the point of that is to prevent or mitigate the risk of someone being wrongfully accused of a stale claim because there is a lot that comes with being accused of something like that. So, So, Marina, to to recap, if the person is under the age of 40, they don't have to comply with any of this. They simply can file their action. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. And until January 1st, 2023, it the, the five-year discovery rule doesn't make any difference. It still means that if you're over 40, you can file this action as long as you comply with the hoops that you're, that you're currently describing. Is that right? It- That's exactly right. Yes. But after January 1st, 2023, if you're over 40, you have to fit into the five-year window that you discovered this within the last five years. Yes. It's a lot easier if the person is... If uh, you do it before they turn 40. Yes. Well, clearly it's easier if they do it before 40, but some of these people don't realize until after they're 40. And, And the only thing I'm just saying is that after age 40, after January 1st, 2023, you've got this added requirement to say that it happens within the last five years. So somebody files a lawsuit March of 2023, they've got to have it established through this process you're describing that within the last five years, they discovered they were a victim of childhood sexual abuse. 
yes, it becomes a big statute of limitations issue and argument that will be adjudicated. And if you can avoid but, but, having it, you, you're, you're better off doing that. Yeah. But explain before if somebody, you know, beat the deadline, the January 1st, 2023 deadline, explain what the certificate would then need to say, because you don't have to establish the five years anymore, but do you still have to establish that it was repressed? You don't have to establish those requirements, particularly in the certificate of merit at the time of filing. You have to establish the fact that you have a reasonable and meritorious case. And that is something that the court has to consider after you file the case. And they have to do that in camera, which suggests that it must be filed under seal. So what would I need to put in a, in a declaration then from a client? And I'm talking before January 1st, 2023. And then we'll talk after January 1st, 2023. You would want to have the, it's not a declaration from the client. It's a, a declaration from the mental health care professional. And they must say, essentially, I've examined this person. I have reason to believe that the symptoms that they are showing are a result of having been abused. So basically showing that their claim has some type of merit in the first place, not necessarily the time frame that's important here, but it's the fact that their claim has merit and they're not just bringing a case, you know, that has no merit whatsoever. Yeah, that's that's what I wanted to key in on is that before January 1st, 2023, the mental health professional ha doesn't have to attest to the fact that it was repressed in their memory. Well, the requirement is not there of five years, like you said. So you don't have to prove that in order to toll the statute. The statute is automatically revived up until the end of 2022. And then after 2022, starting in 2023, who then attests to the fact that it was a repressed memory? So that would just be regularly adjudicated with the, in the case. If we're talking about the pre-filing considerations and, yeah. and the time of filing, then it would be the same procedure, assuming that the person, again, was over the age of 40. So for practical tips for plaintiff lawyers who are listening to this or, or people who might be listening to this, you need to make sure that your client's records don't have any mention more than five years before you file the lawsuit of, well, I know when I was 16, my coach abused me or something like that, because that's what they're going to look for, right? Exactly. And these records are going to be discoverable because these are emotional distress claims. You're putting them at issue, so they're, they're, they're going to be able to look at it and they might have a valid statute of limitations argument, I guess, if they see it later. Yeah, I mean, if, if I'm in taking a new case, I want not only my client to tell me how this memory came up, where it came up, when it came up, but I want to check and double check because that could be very fatal to your case. You know, you get a job counseling report from 12 years ago where the person says, my coach abused me when I was a kid. Goodbye case, right? Absolutely. Again, if they're over the age of 40 at the time of filing. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, no doubt. If you're between the age of 18 and the last day of your 39th year, you don't have to worry about any of these coops. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I had another question. What if you're sort of not sure on this and, you know, you, you've thought about, oh, should we approach the defendant and maybe get a tolling agreement, something like that? What would you do? Would you err on the side of, you know what, you're playing too close to the deadline, just go ahead and file? Obviously, if there's merit, I'm not saying just be trigger happy about it, but would you mess around with tolling agreements, things like that? Or would you err on the side of like, we're going to be safe. And if we do have a legitimate claim that we're going to file, we have all the prerequisites satisfied, we're going to file. We're not going to delay this, right? I would absolutely treat this, you know, age of 40 as any other 
way that you would treat any other applicable statute of limitations, something you don't want to mess around with regardless. And especially because in these, particularly in these sex abuse cases, there is this already this tolling provision that's provided for. So I wouldn't mess around with it. I would get it on file right away and before their 40th birthday. I think that's good advice. Well, that's obviously that's what people should do, but it doesn't mean that they're going to do it. I mean, there's been a lot of press and a lot of publicity on this for the last three years because certain lawyers have advertised like crazy, which I think is fine. I actually, I think it's a great thing that lawyers are out there alerting the public to this because how else would average people know that they have these rights? Yeah, I think that's a valid, some valuable function that lawyers serve, right? We're not just all greedy trial lawyers or something. <laughs> yeah, well, let's yeah. not let's not go down the greedy trial lawyer path here. I think no, I I mean, all kidding aside, no, that there is great social utility that's served by a extending these statute of limitations, b lawyers alerting the public to things like this because it is a serious issue and people clearly have difficulty coming forward. I mean, so Marina, one more time, I'm filing a lawsuit. For someone over 40, I've got to file these certificates from a mental health professional, uh, and and I have to also file my own certificate, right? Correct. And under penalty of perjury, it's an open question. There's no clear authority on that. Probably the smart thing to do is to file it under penalty of perjury, but I don't know if that's a requirement. Do you? I don't believe it is a requirement, but I think in the abundance of caution that it should be done that way. Have you ever seen anybody challenge these certificates? I have not, not in my experience. It's been a pretty straightforward process, straightforward in the sense that you go to the court ex party after filing and the court looks at these certificates of merit and says, okay, as long as, again, all the requirements under 340.1 are met. And I don't want to change topics here, but there are other requirements that are involved procedurally. So whenever you're ready to talk about that, let me know. Uh, oh, let's because- go. No, let's keep going. I want to know all the requirements because it is a quagmire for the over 40 set in so many ways. It absolutely is. And and it's also strange because having to file these under seal before you even have a court case number right. is a strange yeah. procedural I think you were hurdle. saying you, you lodge them because you can't file them because if you file them, they're part of the public record. So you got to lodge them under seal with the court, with the yeah. department. Exactly. You lodge them under seal, but you also normally you would lodge something, go in ex party and move to seal it. Exactly. But you have a case number, right? So this is weird. This is a very strange, quirky statute. And it, again, there's a lot of repercussions that you could get reported to the state bar. For oh, yeah. Filing. Isn't there like it's not just like, uh, oh, if you if you screw up, your filing gets rejected. You can literally be disciplined possibly for screwing up this process, right? Absolutely. And so you have to be very, very careful to follow all of these procedures. So so then there's the second part of the statute. And the second part of the statute deals with the certificate of cooperative fact. And again, we're talking about cases that were filed after the person has turned 40 years of age. So under this, again, as we stated earlier, you cannot name this person by name, the person that you are suing for sexual assault and or you know their work or whoever you're suing for that. But you have to, in order to name them and in order for the duty to serve the defendants in these cases to arise, you must have the court make a ruling on a certificate of cooperative fact. The certificate of cooperative fact has to be filed and you would do that again in ex parte. It also has to be filed under seal. You would go to the court and you have to establish that for each of the charging allegations in the complaint. So you would take those allegations in the complaint that you have that say, If we're talking about a facility, they knew or should have known. Well, I have to file the certificate of cooperative fact that says, 
okay, I have facts to back up the charging allegation in this complaint. And so here I've talked to X, Y, and Z witness. I am aware of X, Y, and Z documents. And when you say you, you mean the lawyer, the lawyer is filing this. It's not the client. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And based on that, there are sufficient facts to support the charging allegations against this particular defendant that are in the complaint. And once you do that, you go in ex party of the court. Again, you have to move to file this under seal. And you say, court, now can we name the defendants in the case? After you get that, an order that says, okay, you can now name the defendants. The duty to serve the defendants arises at that time. And so an important thing to note is because the duty to serve the defendants is not, it's not there before this order, right? right. Because they're not named yet. So it makes it a little bit easier in going in ex party. There's nobody to give notice to. Oh, that's right. And uh, filing under seal. Nobody's going to be disputing that you should file these things under seal. Yeah. But you get that order, then you name the defendants. And then finally, it's as if you have a normally filed case. So there are so many hoops you have to jump. Through. And only then can you go serve the other side. And because before then you, there's nothing to serve on the other side, because they're not named the other side, technically, in the court of law, at least doesn't exist yet. Well, so there is actual case law that basically says that you could adjudicate the case without formally naming them. I think that's very strange. I don't really, but you could have collectability issues, which of course makes yeah. sense. So yes, of course, you should definitely go in, get these defendants named, file your certif certificate of cooperative fact and get the court order that says you can now do in these defendants and then name the defendants. So it's challenging in the sense that like the procedure is logistically complicated, but no one's going to dispute any of the moves you're trying to make during these pre sort of pre-serving phases, right? You don't have to give notice to anyone of your ex parte. No one's going to come in and oppose it. Well, there's no one there to dispute it, Sean. There's no one there to dispute it. Yeah, exactly. You know, you just go in and, and obviously, though, there's ethical considerations. In fact, the statute even has the ethical rules, I think, referenced or at least could be a discipline event if you lie or misrepresent a fact under oath. But yeah. it's just a bunch of hoops you got to jump through. Yeah. Mental health certificate, yeah. getting this thing filed the right way. And again, all of this applies after January 1st, 2023, as well as it does today, right? That's right. It's very complicated. It, it, I don't know any other area in our practice that is this complicated to simply get a lawsuit filed. Yeah, I think there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Well, and part of the history here, too, is this concept was vetoed by Jerry Brown many times when he was governor. And Part of the thinking is much as the concept of extending the statute. Absolutely. Yeah. And part of this was the Catholic Church. Maybe you guys have heard of them. The Catholic Church was very aggressive in its lobbying. In fact, I know specific stories from my time in Sacramento where Catholic legislators were called out by the priest from the pulpit during Sunday mass. Oh, wow. Wow. And said, you know, why would you do this to us? Why would you do this to the church? And Jerry Brown, who, of course, was himself on track to become a priest at one point in his life, would veto it. Oh, wow. And it's only after Gavin became governor that they were able to get this passed. Well, it's an important change. It's a big change. And I'm glad we're talking about it. Am I going to be replaced by Marina? It's right now it's under consideration. Uh, although you did remind me that you're not just my sidekick, you're a partner. Yeah, but I like the sidekick. That's just a, it's a good title. It's a good little nickname for me. Yeah, thanks. I mean, Eddie McMahon was a sidekick, if anyone still knows who he was. 
Yeah, great man, great. by the way. I'm in great company. Yeah. But no, I was going to say, I think we should keep talking about these issues and have Marina on and have her be involved in this. And I think these are interesting issues. And whether people practice this or not, or if they come across these cases, you know, they might be able to recognize them now instead of turning them away for expired statute of limitations or something. Yeah. Or feel free so to I reach out to us if you have questions about this. Actually, feel free to reach out to Marina. Let's be honest. And talk to Marina and see and get information from her. She'd be happy to help you walk through this. It's very complicated. It's very complex, but it's completely manageable if you just know what you're doing. So, Marina, you've been great today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening today. We really appreciate it. This is Brian Kavitek. You can reach me at bsk at kbklawyers.com. And I'm Sean Kernick, and you can find me online at sk at kbklawyers.com. And as you might have guessed, our website is kbklawyers.com. You could find us on all social media platforms at Cabotech LLP. We like putting on the show. We appreciate you listening. If you can go online and like us, give us ratings, follow us on all the different platforms. If you know someone that practices in a particular area and you, you think they might find this useful, feel free to share it with them and feel free to reach out to us. If you have any questions, if you want to bring an interesting case to our attention, you have a potential case you want advice on from us. We'd be happy to help you out if we can. And we'd love to hear from you. 